So children may be able to relate to this very well, but I, met, I bet many of us adults can as well. Think with me how many times you can remember when you were children, or maybe are a child, and I would ask you uh, if you can remember how many times you would ask your parent if you could do something, and they would either answer yes or no. Over time, as children, we would learn which parent would respond yes and which parent would respond no. If we wanted to sleep over at a friend's house and we knew that our mom would say yes and our dad would say no, we'd go right for our mom and ask them if we could sleep over at our friend's house. Or maybe you'd play the game that you uh, ask your one parent and if they said no to your request, then you would go to your other parent and ask without telling them that you had just asked your other parent. Often your parents would say, what did your mother or father say? Underlying this occurrence in most households, there's a problem with the child's view of authority. They're rejecting the authority and decision-making of one parent and looking to their other parent, ultimately hoping for their wish to be granted. They could care less about their parents' desires. They just want what they want when they want it. This morning, we're going to encounter the same problem in the life of the Israelites as a transition of leadership takes place. And you can certainly uh, hold open your uh, Bibles, but the scripture will be up on the screen uh, up top, so you can follow along there or follow along in your Bibles. But as we approach 1 Samuel 8, many of us know kings such as David, King Solomon, King Josiah, but maybe you've wondered, how did these kings ever come into the history of Israel? In 1 Samuel chapter 8, we find the answer. But underlying this is a great theological problem in the Israelites' lives, in the Israelites', uh, in the Israelites view of God. So let's begin taking a look at the text. We see first that the author begins by presenting to the reader the current leadership in Israel. And we get this from 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. In verse 1, we see Samuel makes his sons the next leaders over Israel. 1 Samuel 8, 1 reads, When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. So at that time, the leadership in Israel was Samuel. And before him, it was the priests Eli and their, his sons Hophni and Phinehas. But we see that uh, in earlier chapters of 1 Samuel, we see that Eli and his sons were wiped off the scene when the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines. And then Samuel was the lone leader in Israel. He was known by all of Israel as the prophet of God. Samuel's life is an interesting recorder, recording, and certainly we can't look at the whole thing this morning. We can't summarize even the whole thing um, at this time. But we see that Samuel is unique in the scriptures and is an interesting recording in that his whole lifespan is covered within the book of 1 Samuel. We know details about his family situation and his birth, even, of course, even before he was born. And we know of his activities in the temple as a young boy. So we see before he was born, and then we see as he was, young, as he was a young boy, he served in the temple of the Lord. We know of his calling to be a prophet of the Lord when he was only a young boy. And we know of years later, probably in the middle of his life, we know of a spiritual reformation that he led the people of Israel back to the Lord. And now in our text today, we are giving a recording of when Samuel was old. 
We get his later life recorded. But not only is it unique that Samuel's whole life is recorded in the book of 1 Samuel, but his life is unique in the sense that he is an excellent godly leader of the people of Israel in his time of ministering as the Lord's prophet and also judge of Israel. Here we see Samuel recognize his growing in age, and he saw it fit to make his sons judges over the people while he was still judging as well. Then the author describes Samuel's son's judgeship, 1 Samuel 8, 2-3. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba, yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. So we don't know too much about these two sons, Joel and Abijah, other than the fact that we know that they were Samuel's sons. We know that they were made judges over Beersheba. But most importantly for our text today, we know that they were evil leaders, unconcerned with God or those they served, but only with their personal well-being. And we see their evil conduct is explained. They did not follow the ways of Samuel, but followed their own sinful wants and desires. As 1 Samuel 8, 3 says, Yet his sons did not walk in his ways. We can see that their father was an excellent and upright leader, but they had chosen to turn away and not follow his example. And specifically, they sought to make a profit on their judging. As 1 Samuel 8, 3 says, Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. So the text explains it in two ways, that they took gifts in return for their good outcome in trials, and they did not judge fairly. The judges were commanded to judge fairly and uprightly in the law, as can be seen in Deuteronomy 16, verses 18 through 20. It reads, You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. You shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So we see the sons of Samuel directly disobeyed the law of God, and they did exactly what it commanded them not to do showing a lack of care for both God and his commands. This description of the sons of Samuel should remind us of Eli and his sons. If we would look back at chapters 2 and 3 of 1 Samuel, we would see that Eli, he was a God-fearing man. He was a man that um, seemed to care about the commands of God. Certainly he sinned in his own ways. But we see that he is, he is uh, punished and disciplined by God in 1 Samuel 2 and 3 in that Eli did not give instruction or discipline to his sons on behalf of their sin. So we may ask the question, did Samuel drop the ball in instructing his sons? In answering this, we can see nothing is recorded of Samuel sinning. Certainly, we know that he sinned. He was a normal human being, even though he was a prophet of God. But we see in the recording that we're giving that he no sin is recorded but his faithfulness to the Lord is recorded in serving him and his people. But we see his sons, on the other hand, are not concerned with such faithfulness, but more so they were concerned with themselves. So had Samuel failed to raise his sons just like Eli did by not instructing them and not teaching them the godly way, 
Had Samuel taught his sons the godly way, but they turned away from it? Simply, we see that the text does not say. It's not the focus. The focus of the passage is to show Samuel's sons' disobedience, their evil conduct, and its impact for the future of Israel. So the problem was simply that these men were not seeking after the Lord in their own lives, so how would they lead the people of Israel to do so? At the start of this passage, we are confronted with the problem at hand in the transition of leadership in the nation of Israel. So after the context is given of Israel's leadership, we see that the Israelites seek to solve the problem of the leadership in Israel, 1 Samuel 8, 4-5. through 5. So first we see the elders of Israel address the problem with the current leadership in Israel. Verse 4 and 5, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. So we see Israel is aware of the context that we have just been given, that Samuel is growing older and that he has made his sons the leaders of Israel, though, that they're, though they're evil. And we see Israel, they're right in addressing this problem. They're right in seeing this as a problem, and they even have enough spiritual sensitivity to understand that this cannot be the leadership of, for Israel. So they present the problem to their leader, Samuel. But they take it a step further than that, though, in that they... They don't just address the problem, but Israel proposes their solution, as we can see in 1 Samuel 8, 4 through 5. Then the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Again, I submit to you that Israel was right in addressing the problem of Samuel's, Samuel's son's leadership, but where the Israelites go wrong is in setting forth their own solution. What they see is right for the situation rather than looking to Samuel, who would ultimately look to God for a solution to this problem. So let's look at their solution. First, the first part of the solution to the lack of leadership is for Samuel to appoint a king to judge over them. And we see, and as we see this, we may remember that God had mentioned a king as part of the plan of Israel or the future of Israel. And we can see that this is something that can be seen throughout the history of Israel in that God had spoken about and made reference of for the future of Israel as can be seen in Judges or in Genesis 40 sorry in Genesis 17:6 as we see it reads I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. Genesis 49.10, it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. In Deuteronomy 17.14-20, uh, it reads, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. And then we would see that Deuteronomy goes on to mention uh, the commands that the king is to then follow. And even the author of the book of Judges seems to have a proview of the kingship. As Judges 17.6 says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Judges 18.1, In those days there was no king in Israel. Judges 19.1, in those days when there was no king in Israel, and then Judges 21.25, 25, 
which reads, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So we may question, what's wrong with a king? Why would this be a sin that if Israel brought up having a king? And we would see that the second half is what ultimately dooms them, the second half of the request. The second part of their solution is that he should set up a king for them like all the other nations. Here is the reason that Israel is wrong in asking for a king. It is that Israel's, it's in Israel's motivation and their example in having a king. It's because the nations around them have one. These are the wicked, the idol-worshipping, the evil nations in which God had commanded them to destroy and not take up their practices. So they are wrong in that they want a king, as we see God had planned for a king, but it's in their reason. They want a king like the nations, not a king that would lead them like God. Not a king that would lead them in the ways of God, but they want a king that would lead them how the nation's kings led them, in the ways of the nations. So Israel addresses the problem of leadership, and then we saw that they set forth their solution. Then Samuel responds to Israel's solution for leadership, 1 Samuel 8, 6. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. So we, we may question as we see that Samuel was displeased by this. We may question, is Samuel's feelings hurt? Or did he take personal offense at such a rejection? But if we see these words, dis, but the thing displeased Samuel, we would see that literally this means that Samuel saw this as an evil and a wicked thing in his eyes. Ultimately, it wasn't because his feelings were hurt that he was displeased, but it was because this was a sin against God. And we see Samuel takes it to the Lord. And God responds to the problem, but God's response may be a little bit, be a little unexpected. As we see God answers, the Lord tells Samuel to listen to them. 1 Samuel 8, 7. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in, in all that they say to you. So this was probably not the response that Samuel was expecting. And we see the Lord tells Samuel to do so. The Lord tells Samuel to do this because they ultimately are rejecting him. 1 Samuel 8, 7. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So the people are not ultimately rejecting Samuel, but they are rejecting God from being their king. And here we get the theme of the passage. We get the central idea that this passage is focused around. We see that the Israelite solution to Israel's leadership problem in having a king like the nation, nations ultimately is rejecting the kingship of God in their lives. So again, it's ultimately rejecting the kingship of God in their lives. And this might seem amazing to us. And even as we think about the history of Israel, and I remember back in the days when I had first started reading my Bible through, encountering the different disobedient acts of Israel, as we think about Israel wandering through the wilderness, um, I always was amazed that Israel could disobey in these ways after God had done so much for them. As we think about the plagues in Israel that God had sent, uh, in the plagues in Egypt as God had sent those, as we think about them crossing the Red Sea, and the many things that God had done for them, I remember I was always amazed that they could reject and disobey God in these ways. And now we see the same things happening here. 
we may be amazed that Samuel, I mean that Israel could disobey in this way, that someone could reject the reign of God. But this morning I'd like to submit to you that we do the same exact thing within our lives. Maybe not so blatantly do we reject God or his reign, but we reject the reign of God on a daily basis. And as we move throughout the, te- the rest of the text today, we'll unpack this thought. This is the problem of the passage. It's not only that they want a king, but it is the type of king they want. They do not want a king that will lead them in the ways of God. They want a king like the nations have. This, re- this rejection may be shocking, but the Lord says this is not the first time they've rejected me. 1 Samuel 8.8 8. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. So as shocking as this act is, and as I've said already, this wasn't something new. This was something that the Israelites had done before. This has become a normal routine from the time they stepped foot out of Egypt to that day. They were forgetting him, turning away from him to worship and serve other gods. This rejection, this forsaking, disobedience has become a characteristic of the children of Israel ever since they have been delivered out of Egypt. God also says that they are doing the same to Samuel. So ultimately, we've already said that this is a rejection of God, but God says that, this, that they are also rejecting Samuel's leadership as well. Next, in the fourth way God responds is that the, the Lord sends Samuel to make them a king, but has him warn them about the king they want. 1 Samuel 8, 9. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So in this passage so far, we've seen that, and we've been confronted with the problem at hand in Israel. And we see that Israel addresses the evil and the corrupt leadership of Samuel's sons. And Israel sets forth a solution that is ultimately just as evil and corrupt in that they are rejecting the God the godly leadership that they have of Samuel, but even more so they're rejecting God's kingship in their lives. So we see Samuel reports the Lord's warnings to Israel concerning their solution, as we can see in 1 Samuel 8, 10 through 18. So I'm going to read the ways in which we see in verses 10 through 18, but I'd like you to just take notice of one word as I read. You can see how many times it's mentioned, but think of what Samuel is emphasizing here as the word take repeats over and over again. So pay uh, close attention to the word take as we read verses 10 through 18. It reads, So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. Before I read verse 18, verse 17 hopefully would have brought back remembrance for them of 
being in, in slavery to the Egyptians, as he says, and you shall be his slaves. So this future king that they're going to have, it's going to be just like they were when they were under the Egyptians, slaves. And then we see they will regret this decision, as verse 18 says, And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. So the word stressed over and over again, take, warns the people. This king is not going to be a giving or a gracious king like they have at the, at the moment with God, but this king is going to be like those kings in which Israel had encountered in the time of the judges, in which they had pressed the people of Israel and made them cry out to God in misery because of the hardship and the suffering the king brought. So we see that kingship from the Lord resulted in deliverance. Kingship from this future king would only bring oppression. So the kingship that they're under right now, under God, under his commands, under his law, brings deliverance. It brings grace. He gives to them. But this future kingship, we see that Samuel warns and God warns them that it's going to be just like the kings that they were under back in the time of the judges, back in the time in which they were enslaved to the Egyptians. It would be a time of oppression. Then we get the response of Israel to these warnings, and we see Israel rejects the warnings of the Lord. 1 Samuel 8, 19-21, it reads, But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. So if we've been counting, this is the third time in which we see the Israelites reject God as king. First, it was just simply in coming up with a solution rather, looking, rather than looking to God or to Samuel for the solution to the problem of leadership. Second, it was simply in suggesting a king like the nations. And now third, we see that they have rejected God as king in, that, in their refusal to take heed of the warnings Samuel presents from God. So the question must be asked, how do we reject the reign of God within our lives? Again, how do we reject the reign of God within our lives? And I'm going to present to you two ways in which we do so, um, or we can see in different people. But first, it's important to see that just as Israel was surrounded by the glory of God and many displays of that glory, so too we have God's glory all around us. As we think of the Bible, the very word of God, and even as we think about how God is working even today in our society. So just as Israel had the glory of God surrounding them, so too we have it as well. So how do we reject the reign of God within our lives? The first way we reject God as the king of our life is if we have never submitted or committed our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you have been living under the authority of yourself or another belief system because you don't want to follow the ways of God. You don't want to be stuck under his authority. You want to do what you want to do. You want to live how you want to live. I want to challenge you that this way of living ultimately will, result, will not result well. Just like we saw with the Israelites, they were warned by Samuel. Your rejection of Jesus as your Lord does not just affect your life here on earth, but it has eternal consequences as well for not submitting to Jesus as the Lord of your life. 
The second group of people I would probably think that most of us are in this category, in that we have committed and submitted our lives to Jesus as our Lord, as we even read in the, the call to worship this morning in Romans 10:9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Behind this confession, we have submitted, we have committed our lives to Jesus as our Lord. Jesus as our king, to follow his ways, to live after him, to follow his commands. Though we have done this, this morning I'll submit to you that sadly we often reject that lordship. We often reject his kingship in several different ways. Just as Israel was tempted to conform to the nation, so too we are tempted to conform to the world in the ways in which they live. So four ways in specific. In rejecting Jesus as Lord, we are rejecting his authority in our life. For one, think about how often you go throughout your everyday life and you either forget or simply ignore the presence of God, and for that matter, the authority he has over your life. You may be doing your daily work, you may be doing your daily routine, and it dawns on you that you have forgotten to pray to God, to do your scripture reading. Another way we reject his authority is when it comes to something that you want to do. Though you know God is against it, though you know it's sinful, you decide to do it anyway. You have rejected the authority of God within your life. And I believe, though it's a temptation for all of us, certainly in many different ways, I believe it could be a temptation, especially in our younger years. So a challenge to the teens and even the young adults of our congregation, I'd like to challenge you to continue to submit to the authority of Christ in your life. You're surrounded with many unbelievers, if it be either in high school or middle school, or even with your professors at college, for those that are of the college age, and they are living, we can see that they are living under a different authority. They're living how they choose to live. Their life may seem enjoyable, it may seem um, pleasing, but ultimately this is nothing compared to the one who submits to the authority of Christ. Second, in rejecting Jesus as Lord, we are rejecting his guidance in our life. When we are in a rough situation, who do you look to for help and direction? Is it God or yourself? Another person, maybe a book, maybe a counselor. We often look outside of God for guidance and direction when right before our eyes is God willing and able to help us to live in the perfect, in the right way. This temptation may be, for us, may be for us to see the things here on earth, this earth and choose to follow their guidance and direction in our lives. It's easy to lose sight of God as certainly he's not necessarily visible here with us, but certainly he is. And it's, it's easy to lose sight of that and follow our own guiding and choose to follow others who seem to have it all together. A third way is in rejecting Jesus as Lord, we are rejecting his protection in our life. And I ask you the question, what ultimately do you look to for protection, for security? Is it God or security items that you can buy? How often do we look to other things for protection and security rather than God? How easy it is to forget that God is over our lives. He is sovereign and in control of all things. Nothing escapes his eye and nothing can be done without his supervision. He is the great protector. He is ultimately the one who can save us from any danger. Yet we often are afraid and we're in terror. We often get scared of things that happen in our life without a thought of God. We often look to earthly things for our protection. And fourth and lastly, in rejecting Jesus as Lord, we, we are rejecting his provision in our life. 
when you think of provision, providing for you and your family, do you look to God to provide what you need or your job in the income you earn? So just as Israel rejected God as their king, all too often we reject God as our king in rejecting his authority, in rejecting his guidance, his protection, and his provision in our lives. We see lastly in our passage that the Lord has the final say. As, 1 Samuel, as we can see in 1 Samuel 8.22, the Lord commanded Samuel to make them a king. As it says in verse 22, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. So ultimately, we see that the Lord is in control and sovereign, and he has the final say if they have a king or not, which is certainly ironic that they are refusing the sovereign king. And then we see Samuel sends everyone home. As verse 22 says, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. So they're leaving it to God to choose them, to choose their king for them. So in closing, Israel left that day addressing the sin of rejecting God as their king by demanding a king like the nations. They left that day believing that they were in the right. They left that day ignoring the obvious repercussions of making a king like the nations. As you leave today, will you continue in your rejection of God as king, Jesus as the Lord of your life? For the one who has never placed their faith in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and for us who have made a commitment and would declare to Jesus as Lord, but may struggle to always live in this way, I challenge you to evaluate your life and turn to God as your king, to live, to live with Jesus as your Lord. Let us pray together. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity we have this morning to, to look at your word, God, I thank you for uh, what your word teaches us, Lord. And God, I just pray and we thank you for your reign, for being the king of our lives, God. Lord, I pray that we would acknowledge that kingship. I pray that we would acknowledge your reign in all that we do, God. Often it's, it's easy to lose sight of, it's easy to uh, forget, to ignore, God. But I pray, Lord, that we would uh, constantly be looking to you for all things, for our authority, for our guidance, for our protection, for our provision. And God, I pray that the Israelites would be an example to us, Lord. As we uh, think about their example and the way in which they rejected you, Lord, I pray that we would learn from their example. God, I pray that you would grow us in recognizing your reign, your kingship. And Lord, I just pray for our weeks as we go um, to work this week, as we spend time with family and friends. Lord, we pray that in all that we would do, that we would seek to acknowledge and to live with you as the Lord of our lives, following your ways, following your commandments. Lord, I pray that you would teach us today and pray, Lord, that we would put this into effect this week. Lord, I thank you for all things. And in your name I pray, amen. Well, thank you, Pastor Cruz for that challenge and the exhortation as we are reminded of the kingship and supremacy of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives.